0: Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Matt Johnson. And with me today is Brian Vandemark, a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy, to talk about his new book, The Road to Disaster, A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam. Brian, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. Yeah. Well, so, you know, books about America's descent into Vietnam just fills library shelves many times over. What did you think was missing in those books that led you to write The Road to Disaster?
1: I think among many things, the um, recent near completion of uh, access to the archival record related to American decision making during the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration on Vietnam, and the fact that I was lucky enough and privileged enough to interview and get to know uh, many of the principals uh, quite well.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that jumped out to me in in reading this book was your, especially your close relationship with Robert McNamara. I mean, what did that relationship look like and how did it develop?
1: I began work on a biography of McNamara um, shortly after I had completed my first book on the uh, escalation of the Vietnam War. And he agreed to uh, interviews. um, But the one subject that he would not uh, discussed with me was the most important one, which was the Vietnam war. <laughs> and, uh, about a year and a half or, uh, two years into those interviews, uh, another very thorough and critical biography of McNamara was published, um, by a lady named Deborah Shapley called promise and power. It's very, uh, critical of McNamara. And he asked me to read the book and let him know what I thought of it. I read the book carefully and then I uh, went to his office and, uh, answered his question and told him I thought it was fundamentally a good book. And the reason I told him that was because I, by that point, had come to the conclusion that he was a a big person rather than a small person uh, who would uh, appreciate and even respect honesty uh, from those uh, that he dealt with. And I told him, I said that um, if he was willing to uh, tell his own story based on the record uh, rather than uh, wishful recollection, uh, I would help him do so uh, because that
0: book would be far more important and enduring than anything that I could write about him. You know, how, how much do those, those conversations that you had with them play into uh, this book? Quite a lot. Uh, I spent many, many hours
1: uh, interviewing him on the subject of Vietnam beginning in early 1993. And for the better part of the next year and a half, uh, we met uh, once or twice a month for several hours at a time, uh, going very carefully through the decision-making related to Vietnam during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, he was working from primary source records of his own and those that I was able to supply to him from the presidential libraries. And I recorded all of the interviews. Uh, and They were transcribed. Um, many of the uh, quotes were used in his memoir, um, but many were not. And uh, the years that followed, um, I kept the transcripts. He allowed me to do so. And about five years ago, when I finally decided I was going to come back to this subject, uh, a very significant component of my primary source material were transcripts of these interviews with McNamara as well as Clark Clifford.
0: I mean, I'm wondering just how difficult it is to write about someone like McNamara, who you have you know, a close relationship, one that would most historians would just kind of die to have such close contact with someone like that. But it, it must be difficult having a close relationship with someone like that and then having to write about some of the really bad decisions that they made. I mean, was that difficult to do?
1: It was. I mean, it was hard, uh, even back in the '90s, uh, to help him uh, write his memoir. It was a wrenching experience for him. Uh, his public image was one of uh, the bloodless computer, someone who had no emotion, no feeling, no remorse, no regret, and all of that was simply untrue. Uh, but he was from a generation that masked their emotions and maintained a stoic facade, but beneath that uh, stoic facade was someone who was abundantly aware of the grievous consequences of a lot of the decisions that he participated in, the human cost of them. And it was a great burden on him. And uh, he released a lot of that uh, anxiety, guilt, and remorse in the process of uh, preparing his memoir. And um, watching that was a very sobering experience for me. Um, And I never forgot that uh, at the end of the day, he was a human being too. Um, And his example is a powerful uh, cautionary tale, which is – Uh, when disasters like that occur, it's oftentimes not the function of bad people making bad decisions, but the much more uh, troubling realization that it's often the story of good people with good intentions, uh, making bad decisions because you and I all can view ourselves as good people. The students I teach at the Naval Academy are the best and brightest of their generation. um, And they too are capable of cognitive limitations, cognitive errors, wishful thinking uh, denial, uh, all of
0: those vulnerabilities that can contribute to very poor decisions. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you pointed that out, because you, you point out, especially early on in the book, but but you come back to it that you, you note know that these are people with with good intentions, but you don't you don't hold back your criticism of their policies. But you it's pretty clear that you want to get across that these are not villains, right? I mean, why is that really important to you?
1: Well, because I got to know them well, and I was able to understand
0: uh, and internalize the fact that they were
1: very smart, very patriotic, very well-intentioned, and yet despite all of those qualities, uh, they made very grievously poor judgments that affected the lives of many, many people. And the story of Vietnam, at least the American side of the story, is not the story of villains. It's the story of uh, good people making bad decisions, and that's universal and timeless, um, the same kinds of vulnerabilities and limitations that afflicted them, uh, I'm certain, uh, are afflict decision-makers today and those in the future. And in that sense, the story of the best and the brightest um, is a
0: timeless one. Another thing that jumped out to me when I, I read this book was your use of psychological research. What, what led you down that path?
1: Well, again, it, it, it was a mystery to me for so long um, how to explain to myself and therefore to others The paradox of smart people uh, making stupid decisions. And I I reflected on that at great length. And as I began to um, think about it in very hard ways, I was drawn to uh, a lot of the finding of social scientific research, particularly psychology, cognitive science, and behavioral economics, in which the uh, cognitive limitations of people Uh, can undermine objective assessments. Um, And the harder the problems, the more binding these cognitive constraints can become. Uh, Everyone, all of us use heuristics, which are simplifying rules of thumb to make sense of the world and to process the information uh, that we encounter. Um, But heuristics used in complex and stressful conditions can produce flawed decisions. And once a particular heuristic is used, subsequent considerations fail to exert much impact. And as a result of that, uh, it can lead to overconfidence, ignoring essential information, blindness to your own errors. Um, I think they were susceptible to all of those vulnerabilities,
0: but then so are you and I and decision makers today and in the future. Yeah, but was there anybody's research that really popped out to you in terms of that you just kept coming back to over and over again as, as you were writing this book?
1: Well, there are two um, social scientists in particular uh, whose work I uh, especially admire, Uh, one, um, was a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley named Barry Staw, S-T-A-W, uh, who wrote several seminal articles on, uh, the sunk cost fallacy, uh, that I thought resonated very strongly in the context of decision-making on the Vietnam War. Uh, and more generally and recently, um, the Princeton, uh, scholar Daniel Kahneman, um, who has won the Nobel Prize, um, did a lot of, um, important work with his, uh, Now deceased colleague, Amos Tversky, uh, in which he pointed out that our understanding of the world tends to be much more limited and problematic than we normally think it is. And that um, it's a function oftentimes of cognitive limitations that can afflict very intelligent people as well as ordinary people like you and me.
0: Yeah, but this is largely a book about the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and even though you later on go back to World War II and tell that longer story, you really start this book in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I was wondering, you know, why are those events so important to explaining the descent into Vietnam?
1: I think, in very general terms, it helps readers understand the dynamic, the dysfunctional dynamic that existed between civilian leaders and military leaders at the time that the um, uh, pivotal Vietnam decisions were made. For example, um, during the Bay of Pigs, the military leadership of this country was asked by President Kennedy to review the CIA's plan. They told Kennedy that it stood a, quote, fair chance, unquote, of succeeding. Um, And Kennedy being naive and inexperienced and wishful in his thinking uh, stopped at that. But uh, what the military leaders did not tell Kennedy was what that actually meant. Their belief was that it stood a 30% chance of success, but they didn't tell him that. And I think the lesson that Kennedy drew from that was it's oftentimes what military leaders might not tell a president that is very important, and that made him skeptical and wary about the judgment of senior military officers. Uh, another piece of that story, during the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy had made clear before the invasion began privately to, to the exile brigade and publicly to the american people that american military forces would not be used under any circumstances in that uh, operation and once it began and it started going south uh the military put immense pressure on kennedy uh to send in u.s military forces to save the invasion and kennedy said no uh and the military particularly um Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Arleigh Burke, uh, had a great difficulty accepting the President's uh, no as a final answer. And I think that uh, he and other senior military leaders skirted the line of insubordination, um, which again uh, diminished uh, the quality of their judgment and the opinion of uh, not only President Kennedy, but his successor, President Johnson. During the missile crisis that followed the Bay of Pigs, the military uh, very aggressively uh, lobbied Kennedy to send in, uh, military forces, uh, as an invasion of Cuba, which almost certainly would have led to a general war with the Soviet Union and the possibility of a nuclear exchange. Kennedy was appalled by that advice. He sought to demonstrate American resolve, but he wanted to avoid a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And I th- again, I think that reinforced, uh, his skepticism about the temperament and judgment of the senior military officers and that environment, that dynamic, um, exists at the time that the big decisions on Vietnam are made. And um, the takeaway point there is, because of that, Johnson and the senior military leadership never were really completely frank and honest with each other about what their fears and apprehensions were, because they fundamentally distrusted each other. And that's a very, very dangerous scenario that, generally speaking, produces very bad decisions.
0: I wonder, you know, I might be reading too much into your, your coverage of Kennedy, because we always, you know, uh, a lot of us ask, you know, what would, what would have happened if Kenny was not, was not assassinated, right? And it, it, it's, even though you're, you're very clear in the book that we, we can never know that, uh, the answer to that question, um, you, it seems like you, you were hinting a bit that Kennedy at least seemed a bit more capable than Johnson in keeping uh, the U.S. from troop escalation in Vietnam. Am I, just, am I reading a bit too much in, into that or is, or is that kind of the, the way you see things? Well, I, I would elaborate on that this way, Yeah, which is um, Kennedy came from a
1: privileged background. He had the benefit of a superb education and he had experienced war up close and personal. And I think because of that, two qualities that he possessed that Johnson did not were, one, self-confidence and self-security, and two, a fundamental awareness of the unpredictability and chaos of war. And I think that equipped him with an ability to resist the pressure of senior military leaders when it came to applying American military force uh, in Indochina. He understood the political nature of that war And yet also as an elective politician of the Democratic Party, he felt immensely vulnerable uh, to uh, accusations of being soft on communism. So he was essentially constantly attempting to reconcile opposing imperatives. A, don't get the United States involved militarily on the ground in Vietnam, and B, don't lose Vietnam. And that was uh, an irreconcilable tension. And I think you see that played out in – the context of the planning uh, for the coup against ZM in the fall of 1963. Uh, Kennedy implicitly sanctioned the South Vietnamese general's coup against ZM because he had reached the conclusion that ZM would not mend his way and would not improve his ability to uh, govern his country. And he, Kennedy thought that that was an, uh, a significant burden on success in the war effort on the part of the South Vietnamese. But what he did not contemplate were the consequences of the removal of CM, Uh, he himself admitted uh, privately in the last few months of his life that he did not know the generals who were going to replace CM. And I think it's a a reflection of the theme uh, of that period of decision-making, which is the failure of anticipation. Kennedy did not think through the consequences of what would happen once CM was removed. And a practical consequence of that was political chaos in South Vietnam, which created immense additional pressure Uh, To Americanize the war in order to save the situation. And in a way, Kennedy, who intuitively understood the limits of military force by sanctioning that coup, created pressures on his successor that led to precisely that result.
0: Yeah, I mean, One thing that I, that I want to bring out, um, too, about the book that I, I really enjoyed um, was the way that you see policymakers and how they calculate their decisions. And so you write that you know, more often than commonly assumed or comfortable to contemplate, decision, decision makers operate not as visionary strategists, but as emergency responders to the latest fire, fire alarm. And so I was wondering, you know, how does that perspective influence the way that you write about people like McNamara and Kennedy and even Johnson?
1: Well, I think, again, I was lucky enough and privileged enough to get to know these men pretty intimately. And when you study the record and you understand um, not only their capabilities but their limitations, what you begin to realize is a lot of decision-making at that level is based on incomplete information against a rapidly ticking clock. And I think that tends to compel people not to think through the consequences of a particular option. It tends to reinforce assumptions rather than uh, questioning them And it tends to invite short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking. That's the nature of decision-making at the highest level as it really is. Um, It is not an ideal situation. It is not uh, a rantic situation. And I think people who have never really experienced that dynamic or been privileged enough to see it up close fail to grasp the constraints and limitations uh, that um, are operative in that situation.
0: Yeah, do you think that historians, just even beyond the Vietnam War, but more generally, just writing about politics and policy, have kind of failed to grasp that when they're when they're writing, and often see people more as kind of just uh, having the time and the the the, uh, the luxury of kind of sitting back and having constantly laying out grand visions rather than responding to kind of constantly responding to emergency situations.
1: Well, I think that they, like all of us, are conditioned by their limitations. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't really have the opportunity to see the way that decisions are actually made, the assumption that scholars will often make is that it's a rational actor environment, mm-hmm. a rational actor model, where people have all the information that they need and plenty of time to think through the alternatives. And the reality, the sobering reality, is that's rarely the case.
0: Yeah. I mean, w- when I read the, the, your, your chapters, especially during the Johnson administration, one thing that struck me was just, you know, he seems so, so much more like a, a calculating politician than Kennedy, the way that the way you, you describe him. And, and someone who was constantly focused on the ballot box when he was making decisions. And per, it, it felt like much more like Kennedy was. And, and, am, I, am I right in, in getting, that, um, um, getting that feeling? I would put it a slightly different Mm -hmm. way, Matt. That is, um,
1: John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johns were both political animals. Mm -hmm. Um, They both reached the highest office in the land. um, And you cannot be a political dummy in order to reach that level. (laughs) Uh, they They were both very sensitive to political pressures. They were both very sensitive to public opinion. They were both very sensitive to the accusation that Democrats were soft on communism. Mm-hmm. So they operated under those similar constraints. The differences between the two um, are that Kennedy possessed an inner security and inner confidence that gave him a degree of detachment when he looked at issues and some degree of um, courage when it came to pushing back against the advice of the military. And I think Johnson lacked that inner mm-hmm. security. I think at a very deep level. He was a very insecure individual and i think that partly explains his boorishness and his aggressiveness toward other people um and he lacked therefore as well um the ability to um resist the constant pressure from uh, the
0: military leadership to uh, apply force as a way of solving the problem in Vietnam. You well, know, you do a wonderful job in this book showing the, the cumulative impact of policies throughout the 1960s. And you eventually write that each step deeper in made uh, extrication harder. And so I was wondering, is there a moment in the 1960s where you think that there was really no turning back uh, for policymakers in Vietnam?
1: It's tempting to say the answer to that question is yes. I think the, the reality is it's, a, it's, a, it's an accumulation of decisions and choices and judgments that um, simply created more and more momentum uh, for deeper involvement and made ex- extrication more and more difficult. Uh, the three that immediately come to mind would be uh, Truman's uh, decision to uh, finance uh, France's return to Indochina, not because he was a proponent of colonialism, but he needed France's cooperation in NATO and Western Europe, which was a far high, higher priority for him in the late 40s and early 50s, followed by Eisenhower's decision to uh, create a South Vietnam and try to build it into a viable alternative uh, to North Vietnam, um, uh, followed by, for example, the coup against Diem. Uh Once that occurred, um, the US was very deeply committed politically to the future of that country because we've gotten rid of its leader. And the, the generals turned politicians who succeeded ZM uh, did no better than he did, uh, in most cases even worse. And as I said before, that creates immense pressure. Uh, to deepen involvement in order to save a situation for which you have a great deal of responsibility.
0: One thing I found fascinating in this book is is just the, the way that you, you you talk about how domestic politics really influences, uh, especially Johnson. And, and you have some really great analysis about how Johnson who and his policymakers, who aren't really telling the full truth about the escalation in Vietnam, um, looks good in the short term for domestic policy, but has some really long-term impacts for both domestic and foreign policy. And so I was wondering if you could, you could speak a bit more about that.
1: I will. I think that Johnson was more guilty of that uh, than his well. advisors who privately warned him about the dangers of not being candid with the American people. Johnson was reluctant to... Uh, Americanized the war uh, to get the U.S. military involved in Vietnam. Um, I think he eventually adopted that course when he thought all else had failed and he saw no preferable alternative. But he obscured that deepening involvement. And he didn't do that because he wanted to somehow pull one over on the American people. He had competing uh, pressures and priorities. He wanted to uh get through congress uh his great society agenda which included two landmark pieces of legislation the civil rights act of 1964 and the voting rights act of 1965. and his fear was that if he was candid and blunt with the american people about a the nature of the vietnam problem and b the consequences and costs of coming to terms with it that would uh mortally wound his ability to get those pieces of landmark legislation through congress And as president, your field of vision is 360 degrees over a very broad horizon, and you're constantly weighing competing pressures. And it doesn't excuse Johnson's decision to obscure the deepening American military involvement in any way, but it helps you understand it. And yet it also, there's a poignancy to that because in some respects, he was his own worst enemy by not being frank with the American people. He did not get their informed consent. Or the informed consent of Congress, which meant when things went p- badly wrong, um, he's twisting in the wind with no public
0: or congressional support. You have a great line toward the, the end of the book where you write, "The fog of peacemaking can be just as thick and confusing as the fog of war." So I was wondering if you could explain a bit about what makes peacemaking here so foggy?
1: Well, uh, it relates to a comment that Clark Clifford made to me once years ago that I've never forgotten. Um, And I quoted in the book um, at the end of one of the chapters, I think the end of chapter six, where he said that uh, getting into a war is a thousand times easier than getting out of one. And I think that remains true to this day. Uh, Witness Afghanistan. Um, It's quite easy to step into a war, but it's exceedingly difficult sometimes to get out of one, even if that would serve national interests. Often because you're dealing with an ally, in the case of the South Vietnamese, who are weak and dependent on the United States and therefore desperate not to have us leave, and an adversary in the form of the North Vietnamese who had strategic advantages, uh, which made them uh, unwilling to compromise. And they had no particular incentive to help us get out, and we were bombing them and punishing them physically and uh, damaging and destroying their country. Uh, So that would give them no incentive to uh, facilitate our uh, departure. I think they knew at a basic level, the longer they dragged the war out while controlling their casualties and inflicting casualties on the United States, uh, public support for the war in the United States would inevitably diminish, which would create even more pressure on whoever was president to um, reach terms that would enable
0: us to finally get out. Yeah, this this book really hits home uh, for, for uh, the 21st century. And, and so I'm wondering if, you know, did you write this book with some lessons that you wanted people to take away? Well,
1: I, I spent quite a bit of the second half of the
0: epilogue um, doing just
1: that, trying to look at um, the whole story and what lessons can be learned from that very sad tale that uh, are constructive Um and useful in the present day and in the future. And I think among many, it's um, a very simple insight, which is we all have cognitive limitations in terms of how we perceive and process information. You can never eliminate those limitations, but you can mitigate them and minimize them by recognizing that they exist. For example, something as simple as constantly asking yourself, what do I really know about a situation? when you're on the cusp of a decision? What do I really control uh, in a situation? Uh, And what are the consequences of the choices that I'm making? And those are the kind of questions that are not often asked, um, but they're the crucial questions uh, that will more often than not help you avoid
0: making grievously poor judgments. That's wonderful advice. And Brian Vandermark, thank you for being on the program today. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate it. The book is Road to Disaster. Thank you for listening.